You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. The podcast that pushed Sherlock Holmes over the Reichenbach Falls. Because he had it coming. I'm Megan. I don't get that joke. That's because you've never read Sherlock Holmes or seen a Sherlock Holmes movie, even. He's RJ. I'm RJ. (laughs) And today we're not talking about Sherlock Holmes, actually. Um, we are trying... We're trying. We're trying. We're really trying. We're trying so hard. In fact, we're trying so super hard that we are jumping on that pop culture Hulu train, and we're going to talk about The Handmaid's Tale. I was against this move. The Handmaid's Tale is a big part of a lot of mandatory school reading, and it's also been a hugely contested book over the years because it is frequently uh, challenged, and people try to put it on the banned books list, and whatnot because it talks about sex and you know shows like terrible things happening and it's always great when you read like the list of reasons why a book gets challenged it's like because it has emotionally upsetting material it's like yeah no shit that's the point so you know even if we weren't just trying to capitalize on the fact that the handmaid's tale is a popular television show right now it's definitely a book that would be on Oh No Lit Class, except there is it did kind of one issue. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ? I was on our Facebook account, our Twitter account, our iTunes account. I don't know what other accounts we have. And I noticed we have a motto, and it's Dead Authors, Fresh Takes. Yeah, we do, don't we? We do. No, um, Margaret Atwood... Margaret. Margaret Margaret Atwood. No, uh, Margaret Atwood is still very much alive. As of today. True. By the time this episode comes out, maybe maybe we'll have foretold something terrible. I, I hope that she's still alive when this comes out, or it will look like we killed her. At some point or another, this was going to happen. Because not... I mean, like, the majority of the uh, high school and college mandatory literature class canon you gotta be dead before you make it in there, but not all of them. And, like, we were gonna run up against this at some point, so let's get it out of the way early. Sometimes the authors won't be dead. Just like, um, we have some episodes coming in the future where we're gonna, like, switch up the format, and we might be talking about, like, tropes, or different, like, cliches and things like that, or we're gonna be examining, like, an author's, uh, whole body work if they just do, like, short stories. So, it's gonna change up. It's gonna. It's still the same basic premise. You get your literature. You get your penis jokes. It's all. It's all gonna come out in the wash. You just. You know. You have to learn to be okay with it. RJ, are you gonna be? No. 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 <laughs> Promises were made in our motto. I mean, the takes are still fresh. We're gonna do the Handmaid's Tale. You're just gonna have to live with it. Margaret Atwood isn't dead yet. As of today. Alright. You want to get us started, RJ? I did. Margaret Atwood's not dead. Yeah? Uh, she's still, like, 70-some-odd years old, and, you know, she did some stuff, if you want to talk about that. Margaret Eleanor Atwood. Oh, my God. Please. As <laughs> Megan would say. Margaret Eleanor Atwood. Born November 18, 1939. Still currently alive. Not dead. Yes. However, I did consult a number of online death clocks. I, that, that's, you know, I was about to be like, wow, that's a thing. But yeah, of course, it's the internet. Of course, that's a thing. What do you mean you don't know this is a thing? You never did this as a teenager. Like, what am I going to die? No. Put in this information and find out? No. What? You're the weird one. I'm the weird one because I'm not asking an internet fortune teller to tell me when I'm going to die. Yeah. Anyway. Multiple death clocks confirm Margaret Atwood will die September 3rd, 
2022. Now, that's really specific. We're unsure of how she's going to die. There's two possibilities. What? What is this? <laughs> She'll die in a car crash. Oh, okay. Or in a like alert bathtub accident. I'm hoping for the latter, just for the comedic value. Okay. Megan. RJ. Help. <laughs> I've slipped in my tub. Oh, Jesus Christ. And I can't get up. And I'm Margaret Atwood. And I'm Margaret Atwood. <laughs> this could have been avoided if I had a life alert. A. 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 She is Canadian. Yes. Uh, perhaps you could tell us more about that. And less about how some online death clock thinks she's going to die in a bathtub in three years. Oh, wait, you said 2022. Five, you're fine. She's going to die Let's in a... Let's do this together. She's going to die in a bathtub in five years. This is how she is, people. Delightful and occasionally bad at math. Not occasionally. Always. Uh, so, Margaret... Born in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. She is a poet, a novelist, an essayist, a literary critic, and an environmental activist. She's very busy. She is. Now, she was uh, the middle child of three children. She was the daughter of Margaret Dorothy Atwood. Oh, we got that uh, Mary, Mary, Margaret, Margaret situation. Yep. People just love naming children after themselves. No one says anything about it when dudes do it. Now, Margaret Sr. was a dietitian and nutritionist. Her father, Carl Edmund Atwood, was an entomologist. Ooh. Now, Margaret spent a lot of her life living up in the woods out there in Canada, which is probably why she became an environmentalist. I, I just imagine Canada is all woods. At the age of six, Margaret Jr., Began writing plays and poems, as one does at the age of six. She was homeschooled until the age of eight. During that time, she read comic books, Grimm's fairy tales, and... And wrote plays. Mystery books, <laughs> and was writing plays and poems <laughs> on her own. Eventually, she uh, obtained a master's degree. That's a big jump there. <laughs> she, how old was she when she... T she was homeschooled until she was eight, and then she got a master's degree. Well, so one of the problems with finding biographical information about people who are alive is a lot of times biographies haven't been written about them because, especially if they don't want them to be written about them because they're still alive. And so this is what I'm working with here. Fair enough. You pick the one. Oh my God. Who is still alive. All right, she's got a master's degree. Actually, she has, if I recall, over like almost two dozen honorary degrees uh, besides that. So she gets her master's. She decides she's going to pursue a doctorate degree. She goes to Harvard for two years, and then she quit when she got to her dissertation. Margaret Atwood is a fucking failure and a dropout. Oh, Just another brick shit. in the wall. shit. Oh, my gosh. She couldn't cut it. At Harvard, which is important... Is in Boston. Oh, oh, Let's keep oh, this in mind, people. Shit. Because I think this failure explains a lot. Okay, in retrospect, yeah, it's kind of gonna hang, hang on, hang on to that thought, folks. Yeah, Margaret Jr., the fucking failure dropout. <laughs> Not that specifically. She just couldn't hack that one. I hope you listen to this, Margaret. <laughs> See. You're the one letting me talk to people still alive. Oh, yeah. I'm realizing now that's a really bad idea. On the bright side, I'm pretty sure Margaret Atwood is not one of the 40 people that listen to this podcast. Yes, but we have an army out there who can at Margaret Atwood and call her a fucking failure dropout. Do not at Margaret Atwood and call her a fucking failure dropout. Who then internalized her own fucking failures and her own dropoutness <laughs> and used it as a knife. To attack others. Oh, wow. But it's okay, because now she has, like, 24 honorary degrees, so... So does Shaq. I'd read a book that Shaq wrote. Now, one thing I didn't know about Atwood, aside from being a fucking failure, was that she's also an inventor. I didn't know that either. She invented something called the long pen. Okay. Now, what the long pen is... Is there a reason that you're saying it that way? I'm making sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Okay, I wasn't sure if it's like just capitalized funny or it's like the long pen. Well, it is normally be T 
two words. They make it one word and they capitalize the P. Oh, uh, okay. The long pin. Yeah, the long pin. <laughs> so it is so... So it is so. <laughs> so well, I, I'm, still trying to, I'm still trying to grasp my head around... I don't know what you can grasp your head around, but continue. The necessity of this invention. So let me give an example of a long pin. Let's say I'm in Boston, where Margaret Atwood failed at life, and I want to sign a book that's all the way over in eh, Seattle. As one often does. But I don't want to travel to Seattle. Why would you? So with the long pen, I, in Boston, have a pen. In Seattle, there's a machine with a pen attached. Now, in Boston, I move my hand like I'm writing something. That pen in Seattle moves the same exact way. What the fuck? This has allowed Margaret Atwood to sign books from thousands of miles away. That you're just, you are so lazy you don't want to go to the book signing, so you invent an entirely new sort of, and kind of like, what, what sounds very like intense and complex technology... So you don't ever actually have to look at someone when you sign their book or move. Like, you just well, do it in your in your house, in your underwear. Actually, this sounds great. Well, in, you say you don't have to look at them, but I, the, the goal so far has been is, like, you kind of Skype in. Oh, yeah, that makes more that sense. That you watch someone walk up and you tell them, hold the book to the pen. And then you start <laughs> moving the pen. I'm not wearing pants, but hi. Now, this technology and its related patents, yeah. it's actually helped advance the science of uh, sex toys being used across great distances. Okay. You're in one place, <laughs> the toy's in another place, and you can do stuff to your partners. So I'm just picturing, like, maybe you're away, or even if you're just, like, maybe you work weird hours or something, it's late at night, for whatever reason, you're not home, but your partner is, maybe they're falling asleep using in the bedroom and suddenly you remotely turn on your uh, vibrator and scare the living shit out of them long pen technology yeah not short pen no very long yeah why would it be the short pen that's like say i'm in boston say you're three feet ahead near me i sign your book it's the short pen it's a regular fucking pen so what you're saying is even margaret atwood has to compensate for not having a penis. No! Ugh, why are you gonna make it about that? Her reach has to be longer than everyone else's. That really doesn't have anything to do with a dick, though. Her pen has to be the longest. <laughs> Sometimes a pen is just a pen. Alright, we've spent way too much time talking about a fucking pen. Keep going. Uh, Margaret spent a lot of her post-failure life teaching. You're gonna make me regret this the whole time. She's taught at great universities like the University of Alabama, at NYU, at the University of British Columbia, Sir George Williams University in Montreal, at the University of Alberta. Oh, and the University of Toronto. She's just taught all over the place. Well, she, she's Canadian. It makes sense she would teach in a lot of Canadian schools. Now, one of the things she teaches, might be shocking, is about the patriarchy. Who would have guessed? Now, one thing that I uh, found out about, Margaret jr is she's really hung up on defining labels that people use to describe her novels and other people's novels oh yes i did i did read that as well when someone uses the feminist label in margaret jr's world she believes it should only be used for writers who consciously work within the framework of the feminist movement accidental feminism does not count no i guess you have to consciously be feminist I guess there's there, I can, there's something to that. You know, I, I don't think you if you just sort of blunder into it and it's like, oh, I accidentally wrote this like real feminist there, I would take super credit for it. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like after the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling being like, and Dumbledore was gay the whole time. I'm just a diverse diversity. The other big label that she gets caught up on is the difference between speculative fiction in science fiction. That's the one that I had been reading about, not the other one. And so the way that she's decided to define it is science fiction, and I'm quoting her here, label belongs on books with things in them that we can't yet do. Whereas speculative fiction, quoting her again, means a work that employs the means already to hand and that takes place on planet Earth. 
she uh, says that science fiction narratives uh, give the writer the ability to explore themes in ways that realistic fiction cannot. And so she doesn't really see herself as a sci-fi writer. She likes to think of herself as a speculative fiction writer. For her, this is a big deal. I don't know why. I mean, I think that there's a validity in the sense that there are sort of two different things that you think of. Like, when someone says science fiction, you typically have a kind of, like, futuristic, laser, Star Trek kind of idea in your head. But, uh, yeah, it does kind of make it sound like it's like, spaceships is sci-fi, speculative fiction is, uh, not? I don't know. So, Megan? RJ? Let's start discussing this piece of speculative fiction written by Margaret Jr. But fucking failure. No, I'm just gonna order have that one. Harvard dropout. <laughs> Alright, let's. Okay, so, The Handmaid's Tale, which could also be called... The other dystopia that's all about sex, but not in the fun way, like 1984. Oh, or, daddy. Uh, let's not go there. Or, The Handmaid's Tale. A woman sits in a small white room and remembers a bunch of stuff. Oh, daddy. No! No! We're gonna go to some dark, bad places. You don't get to oh, daddy it up. Margaret Atwood... Junior. ...takes us to the distant future of 2005. Um, she wrote the book in, what, 85, right? This is what she thought, you know, 20 years down the line was gonna be going on. In what is ostensibly America, but referred to as the Republic of... Gil Gilead? Gilead? Gilead. Gilead? The Republic of Gilead. Sure. Where pollution and various other... stuff have rendered most people sterile... And healthy, non-mutant babies are a precious commodity. So, what's the solution? Puritans. Yes, Puritans. That's what's gonna fix this. Basically, uh, they strip away all the rights of anyone who's not a straight white dude and turn fertile women into sex cattle by physically and emotionally abusing them and systematically brainwashing them until they no longer have any personal agency. Gentile white men. Yes, straight, straight white Christian men. There's a lot of religious, uh, it's not even undertones, just, just tones, just general tones. Not subjects, but text in this novel. So yes, straight white Christian men. Uh, so yeah, they think, you know, this, this is the best way to go about fixing this problem. Makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. So we meet our narrator, whose real name, we don't know at this point, but has been given the name Offred. Offred is what's called a handmaid. A woman with a working set of ovaries and a uterus for rent, whose job it is to have sex with upper-ranking dudes called commanders, whose wives usually can't get pregnant, in the hope of making some babies. Or else. Anyway, we first meet Offred lying on a cot with a bunch of other women who are being kept under guard in what used to be a school gymnasium. The guards are women called ants, like the relative, not the insect. So aunt. Aunt. Yeah. You, you gonna go out with your aunt on the roof? That's how... You talk like a normal person. Oh, th th this is how the wasp talk, Meg. <laughs> so anyway, the, these aunts have cattle prods and will zap the shit out of anyone caught talking. You know, like gym class. Or aunts. <laughs> like aunts do. Occasionally, the imprisoned women get to go out for walkies in the football field, the perimeter of which is guarded by these dudes called angels. So this is one of those dystopic future sci-fi novels where everything has a special capital letter. You have angels, commanders, marthas, aunts, guardians, eyes, wives. Like, yes, even wives gets a big capital W and handmaids. And there's a vague capital W war happening. There are capital C colonies, that, that sort of shit. At some point, when the women are, are in the gymnasium, they, like, whisper their actual names to each other. And while Alfred never specifies which one is hers, if you do, if you, you're paying attention, the one name that doesn't really seem to have a person attached to it is June. So we can assume that that is her real name. And also, I think they call her that in the Hulu TV show anyway, so... So anyway, you want to take advantage of this TV show and you couldn't be bothered to research it at all. Continue. I know that Samira Wiley's in it and she's pretty. So anyway... Offred is transferred to a commander's house, and she's pretty upset, not just because her life is absolutely horrible, but because this is the third commander she's been transferred to and has yet to make a baby happen. 
This is because the majority of the commanders are also infertile, but hey, why would they start making men accountable for anything now? This is her last shot to make it work before being exiled to the colonies, which is basically the irradiated desert hellscape from the 1990s version of Judge Dredd. Except maybe not quite as bad, because at least Rob Schneider isn't there. I am the law. I'm the law. I'm the law. Might have mentioned it just so we could do that. I am the law. So at this new commander's house, she has a tiny bare room that's been stripped of anything she could possibly use to kill herself, because handmaids have a habit of doing that, and of course, this is the best way to solve that problem. Yeah. Uh, she meets the two Marthas of the household. Uh, Marthas are basically just, like, live-in servants. They, like, cook, they clean, they take care of everything. Um, and they're called Marthas because of vague religious reference, which is pretty much the reasoning behind every naming convention in Gilead. Even the name Gilead is something or other in the Bible? Martha Washington. Yeah, it's Martha Washington. America's first mother. And lo, did Jesus say, hey, Martha Washington, what's up? So, Offred remembers her husband Luke and their daughter, insert name here, back when the world was a normal place and shit hadn't gone all dystopic. They had all tried to escape to Canada, because nothing bad ever happens in Canada, but they were separated and she has no idea where they are and if they're alive or dead. She then remembers meeting the commander's wife when she first gets there. And the wife is not, as you would imagine, super stoked about her husband having to keep having sex with young, fertile women because she can't have kids. So she's pretty mean and terrible, and her name is Serena Joy, because dystopic novels are all about subtlety. You have a joke there? Don't call me commander. Call me master and commander. <laughs> the far side of the world. Damn it. I'm Russell Crowe. <laughs> and then Alfred goes grocery shopping. But women aren't allowed to walk around outside alone because of course not, so she's assigned a shopping buddy named Glen. Okay, so here's the thing. It took me an embarrassingly long time to realize their names were just of whatever dude they belong to. And the reason of that is I don't understand people why they call her Alfred. It's Alfred. It's true. It should be Alfred, but it's like you see that oh, and you just want to say Alfred. Um, but... Or she's off-bred because she doesn't fit in with the other Handmaid's Tale, which are all red and the Martha's in green and other such colors, which Megan ignores. No, yeah, it's true. I didn't say Handmaid's got wear red, Martha's got wear green, aunts wear blue. I think. Well, if you see, then her name matters because she's off-bred. But yeah, I didn't realize that it just means like that her commander's name is like Fred. And at first, when I was a kid reading it, I was just like, what's with these, like, shitty, vaguely Swedish-sounding future names? Offred and Offglen going shopping. <laughs> you thought yams were an animal. Have you seen don't, what yams Don't, don't like? look at me like that. Yams kind of <laughs> like animals. Yeah, well. Anyway, Offred and, or Offred, whatever, and Offglen go shopping, walking by this guy named Nick, who's the commander's manservant? House? Boy. We call them chauffeurs. Eh, not 100% certain what Nick's purpose is, except... He's a chauffeur. Yeah, but he's in the house a lot, and really, he mostly just trades smoldering looks with Alfred. Whatever. They enter the city proper, and it's eerily quiet and weird. There are no you... sounds of children playing. Yeah, you'd think there'd be parties all over the yeah, place. Yeah, just super awesome. In one of the stores, there's a pregnant woman, and all the other women are like, fucking show off uh but on the way back home something weird happens and i mean weird sort of relatively speaking they run into some japanese tourists who are just there visiting and and dressed like normal people and they want to take pictures with the handmaids and are like you guys happy here and offered is nervous that there are spies around so she's like yeah we're super great and just like what the fuck? Like, this fucked me up when I read it because it's like, is the rest of the world still normal and America just went, like, tits crazy? But it's like if, in 1984, uh, American tourists just showed up and were like, oh, shit, get my picture with Big Brother right now. Oh, man. And then we gotta go hit the gift shop at the Ministry of Love. Like, it's very strange that, like, they just let tourists, like, wander around their weird uh, totalitarian republic and just take pictures of shit. 
So it's like a reverse North Korea. Uh, yeah, kind of. That is that is kind of the analog we have for that, huh? Uh, so we learn that this city is what used to be Boston, which um, originally before. <laughs> You know, a few minutes ago, I would have said I would chose it because it's it's close to Canada, and so it would make sense that they're you know can make like a run for the border that it's in a northeastern area, and that like maybe it's more of a shock. Like if this took place in like Kansas or Texas or something, we'd be like, yeah, well, but Boston, a misogynistic religious zealot dystopia, in my northeastern liberal enclave, it's more likely than you think. It's where the Puritans landed. Shh! Don't tell them that. Like literally, <laughs> it's also where they killed people because they thought they were witches. It's also the site of what was apparently Margaret Atwood's greatest failure. So then she goes to her room and thinks about more things, like how the aunts at the center were like, "Watch out for the wives; they're crazy." And also thinks about Luke some more. She explores her room a bit and finds carved on the inside of a cabinet the Latin phrase. Oh Jesus! I'm not gonna be able to read this. No, no, te. Bastardes Carborundorum? Which she takes a comforting, because she's like, it's Latin, that's like what's in the Bible, and not realizing until later that it's like the broken English, like, fakey Google Translate version of Latin. It basically means, don't let the bastards grind you down. So it makes her kind of remember her friend Moira, who she went to school with. Moira was awesome and badass and also a committer of... Dun, dun, dun. Pussy eating. Yes. Also known as gender treachery. So gay dudes are exiled to the colonies, but lesbians have those sweet, sweet ovaries, so they're kept around as handmaids. Moira actually saw this whole dystopic coup thing coming, and the narrator was like, oh, come on, you're being paranoid. Luke said that this could never happen, and he knows because he's a man. And then it happens, and Moira's like, told you so. And when the narrator is first taken to the center to be trained in handmaidery, Moira is brought in after her, but, unlike Alfred, has no time for this bullshit and tries to escape. They catch her and beat the hell out of her, and while this might have discouraged someone less badass, Moira instead lures an aunt, an aunt, whatever, into a bathroom, assaults her with a weapon she made from part of a toilet, steals her clothes, and gets the hell out of there. Moira out, fuckers. But hey, Alfred's still busy remembering things. Like when she went to the doctor a day or so ago for her fertility check-in. The doctor offers to get her pregnant to save her in case her commander is firing blanks, which seems likely since he's gone through a couple of handmaids at this point. And she's like, uh, maybe no. And then that scene ends. And then she and the Marthas and Nick have to sit around and listen to the commander read from the Bible. And it's boring and Nick maybe touches her foot. And then that scene ends. There's, there's There's a rhythm here. Alfred remembers things in her room, and then the scene ends. And then we see just what uh, Alfred is there to do when not remembering things in her room, and it's terrible. So, yeah, we know that she has to have sex with the commander, of course, but Serena Joy is there too! And Alfred is basically in her lap the whole time, and they're holding hands, um... And, and so basically, it's like the commander is still having sex with his wife. There's just this other vagina in the way. And it, it's just the worst. Oh my god, it's like the worst menage a trois ever. And Abbott makes a point of saying that all three of them just hate it and sort of mentally check out until it's over. Afterwards, she goes downstairs and steals a flower. And Nick is there, and he sees her, and they kiss because reasons. And then Nick kills the moment by saying the commander wants to see her alone the next day. <gasps> what will it be? Daddy talk. Ew. Okay, no, you you just hear this whole like gross horrible thing about how they have to how she has to have sex in Serena Joy's lap and that's where you you go. She doesn't have to. These people choose these fucking lives, man. No one's happy with the society. No, no one is happy, and yet they all keep doing it. Right, so my whole point is, they don't have to. <laughs> if maybe any of them aired any opinions. Yeah, well, that, that's a whole other So night. Puritan of them. Just bury it down deep. Just repress it and do the thing. How Boston. <laughs> uh, but then there's a birthday. Who's... Um, a baby's. Because one of the handmaids has successfully given birth to a baby! Yay! 
Yay! The wives continue their weird pantomime of, like, what we just talked about with the sex by pretending that the wife is the one who had the baby and not the handmaid. It's weird. They, like, shuttle the handmaid away off somewhere, and then all the wives sit around. They're like, oh, man, that was that birth must have been super hard, huh? And it's, it's super creepy. Alfred remembers giving birth to her daughter and thinks about her mom, who was a feminist and would argue with Luke all the time. Also, we learned that Luke was still married when Alfred started seeing him, and I feel like I'm kind of liking Luke less and less as this story goes on. So that night, she goes to the commander's office and is super nervous because this is, like, a, a big no-no. They're just supposed to have, like, cold, emotionless sex. They're not supposed to talk. They're not supposed to interact with each other in any other context or setting. So she's scared to go in there, but who knows what he'll do if she doesn't show. Does he call her Alfred? It would be weird, right? Like, hey, of me, get over here. <laughs> hey there, of me. How's it going? I guess you just refer to her as handmaid? Probably, or just, hey, you. Well, there's a lot of yous in this house. As you say, there's the wife and Nick and... Well, they got names. He could say, hey, Serena Joy, hey, Nick. Well, either way, waves her in and asks Alfred if she wants to play some Scrabble. Eh? Eh? A little Scrabble? You know what I mean? No, really, that's what they do. They play Scrabble. And then he wants a little kiss. And Alfred goes back to her room like, what the fuck? fuck was that he called me in there for scrabble and makeouts and then she loses it and just starts cracking up over how absurd all this shit is and i can't say i blame her time passes and offer keeps meeting with the commander to play various board games she's actually almost kind of disappointed in a weird way that the kinkiest thing the commander asks her to do is play boggle did i ever play stratego no what a loser or risk risk sucks now, I was Catelyn. <laughs> or Catan. Catelyn? Catelyn. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would have been hot if he was like, hey, you want to come to my office and play some Settlers of Catan? Yeah. I've got wood if you've got wool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, unfortunately, the commander is not that imaginative. And the Baron Rock <laughs> would have been everyone's ovaries. <laughs> Ha ha ha! Nah. When she's out shopping with Offglen again, they've kind of reached a point where they're comfortable enough with each other that they talk openly about their shitty situations. They can trust each other. And Offglen hints that she might be working with a resistance called Mayday. Back at home, Offred remembers when this whole thing like went down and women suddenly couldn't have jobs or their own bank accounts and porn became illegal because I guess that's as much a marker of totalitarian government as suddenly having no rights. And at first she wants to go off and protest and Luke's like, eh, what's the point? It's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. You can just deal with it, it's fine. And Alfred suspects that Luke doesn't really care and might be kind of into her being powerless because the night that she loses her job, he's just like, that's hot, let's have sex. And Luke just sounds like a dick. Why does she miss Luke? He's a Skywalker. No, Luke's, he... Luke Skywalker would never be like that. He's a good boy. So Serena Joy takes Offred aside and is like, so, you hit breakers yet? Bun in that oven? Baby in your belly? fetus in your uterus (laughs) no you know what would help having sex with nick and not my weird scrabble playing husband you should have sex with nick why aren't you having sex with nick yet i will find pictorial proof of your daughter if you have sex with nick and offered's like sure but serena follows through and actually does find a picture to give offered of her daughter that shows that she's like alive and well and she's grown so much and she might not even remember Alfred anymore, and it's awful, because everything in this book is awful. Not the party scene. It's pretty awful. Yeah, there's cake stands. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, Flo Rida not, shows up. We're not at the part where Flo Rida shows up. Spoilers. Anyway, uh, Alfred learns that the commander finally has something different in mind for her. Monopoly. No. Chess. No. Checkers. Nope. Uh, Jumanji. That would have taken things in an interesting direction. Dungeon and Dragons. (laughs) That would have been really great, but no. He wants her to dress up in his wife's clothes and take her to a secret speakeasy-style sex motel. 
which might be the furthest possible thing from Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, yeah, it sounds like roleplay to me. She's literally <laughs> wearing a costume. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, the hotel's full of hookers, and surprise, one of them is... Moira! Yay! Oh, you got her out on the first try for once. Oh, yeah, because she became a whore. It's yeah, a lesbian yes. too. Why would you say that? That's how it was in the book. The lesbians are made into whores. Yeah. That's all lesbians do. Well, you need to say, like, in the book, not just, like, lesbians become whores. So, yes, it's Moira. And she tells Alfred that um, after she escaped, for, like, eight or nine months, she was being smuggled, what I imagine is very, very slowly, towards the Canadian border when she got caught. And they gave her the choice between being a brothel girl or sent to the Mad Max desert. The scene ends on the chipper note that Alfred never sees Moira again. But since it's Moira, I'm going to assume that she fashions more toilet weapons, kills everyone, escapes, and makes it to Canada where she celebrates her victory with lots and lots of hot gender treachery. I'll call it Handmaid's Tale 2, Moira's Revenge. She's gay, and she's pissed. You're just jealous of my great idea. Okay. Meanwhile, Alfred remembers that uh, shortly after this whole sort of governmental takedown thing happens uh her mother disappears and luke the jackass tells her not to bother trying to look for her because eh, that sounds hard what's the point also i'm an asshole that's a dentist hold yourself fuck luke then the commander makes her have sex at the hotel and it's basically rape and like you know i'm, I'm running out of jokes here because this is just exhausting and terrible Later that same night, because why should the nightmare ever end when they get back, Serena Joy arranges for Alfred and Nick to bone. And actually, it's like one of the first times in forever that she has sex, and it's not a completely emotionless, horrible, rapey experience. But then, of course, being able to feel feelings for the first time in however long makes Alfred cry, but you know what? Fuck it, we'll take what we can get in terms of happiness at this point in the book. So, uh, she and Nick keep having sex, and she can't even remember what Luke looks like anymore. Which, like, good, fuck him. But just in case you thought things were getting too chipper, Alfred has to go to a public execution with other handmaids, and as a reward... Frosty chocolate milkshakes? No. They're allowed to tear a dude to pieces as punishment for him raping two handmaids. It's... is is just real bad. I have a joke for that. It's pretty horrible than going to the dentist. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> she tries to repress these events and heads out to shop with of Glenn, and it's a different woman. And Alfred's like, oh, where's of Glenn? And she's like, what do you mean? I am of Glenn. And unfortunately, the book does not turn into some kind of invasion of the body snatcher shit, but... The uh, Offglen that we know has killed herself, and now this lady is the new Offglen. So, Offred goes home, and Serena Joy is pissed because she found out about Offred and the Commander's Hotel Rendezvous. And she doesn't really do anything. She calls her a whore. She's really mad. And that's uh, kind of it. Offred goes to her room and thinks about doing something. Anything. Shopping. But doesn't. I wish I was reading Moira's Revenge instead, but oh well. Then Nick comes in, calls Alfred her real name, and, I mean, it just says, like, he called me my real name. You know, he doesn't be like, hey, June. Bug. <laughs> a little June bug. Yeah. Go on, buggy. Uh, he says that there's a black van coming for her, and it's Mayday, and they're here to help her escape. And there's no real proof of that, but Alfred goes with them, it really because they take her. And God forbid she makes her own choices. And then her story ends. Thank God. But. Oh. Because Atwood realizes that after slogging through this sadness pile, she should leave things on a marginally happier note. There's a whole page of nothing but socks win, socks win, socks win. <laughs> and you feel good because nah. the socks won. And you go, yeah. And you march in the streets, Boston Pride. So, what it is is she uses an epilogue to frame Alfred's story as a series of tapes 
discovered by two historians almost 200 years later and presented at the Wow, That Gilead Shit Sure Was Crazy Symposium. They still don't know who Alfred actually was, but that since she had the time to make the tapes, she probably made it out okay. Maybe. Were the auctioners male or female or one of each? Uh, one was male, one was female. I know, that's also supposed to help you make you feel better. Like, oh good, women are allowed to do things again. I mean, it's almost 200 years later, I would, I would hope. And this is the, I think it's the 12th annual, like, symposium. So for at least 12 years now, they've been like, some shit went down, huh? It's kind of like when we look back at our history 200 years ago. Or 200 years from now. So in terms of adaptations, there is obviously the one that's happening right now on Hulu with the very cute Samira Wiley. And then prior to that, there was a radio drama, a stage play, a literal actual opera, and a 1990 movie with Natasha Richardson and Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall. He's in Godfather. So... The Handmaid's Tale movie, the 1990 movie, to give you an idea of quality, the screenwriter abandoned the script and wanted his name removed from the movie, and then they wouldn't let him. They were like, mm, nope, fuck you, it's staying in. If you've never seen it, just go watch the trailer on YouTube. It's approximately five hours long, or at least it feels that way, and it, it tells you the whole movie. Like, it's the whole movie. As sweet-ass Robert Duvall. I wish I was a handmaid in that world. <laughs> Hey, Commander. Uh, please stop. You could be my Russell Crowe any day. Who plays a Commander in the Hulu one? Someone not as hot as Robert Duvall. I'm gonna check now. Whoa, Joseph... Gordon-Levitt? No, uh... JGL? Joseph Fine. Fines? Fines? Ray Fines' his little brother. Finis. 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 Hot boy. Not as hot as Robert Duvall. <laughs> I played Scrabble on his head. So Margaret Atwood, as you may guess... Kind of political. Maybe. Maybe maybe just a smidge. When she wrote this book, she was very upset by the North American Free Trade Agreement that Ronald Reagan was trying to pass. And as a proud Canadian, she was against free trade. And so she had enough of this America. Um, And Ronald Reagan and his free trade and televangelist, kind of like Serena Joy. That's true. I didn't mention that Serena Joy used to be a televangelist. My bad. And... So that's kind of the backdrop. Uh, Margaret Atwood's been asked herself, like, what is her political beliefs? Because, you know, it seemed liberal, card-carrying kind of person there. She describes herself as a Red Tory, which is a UK affiliation, which is a center-right person. So someone who is fiscally conservative, but they see themselves kind of progressive when it comes to social issues, libertarians. She's basically the Rand Paul of Canada. Wow, holy shit. Don't say things you can't take back. Now, the interesting thing about Red Tories in particular, especially if you're going to refer to yourself as a historical Red Tory, is they're very anti-American. Like, they still harbor anger towards the American Revolution. Like, they were loyal to the UK for years and years and years up there in Canada. Are they still part of the UK? No, they're not part of the When did they stop being part of the UK? I don't know. It was a... Long time after us. Yeah. They, they hung in much longer than we did. And so the Red Tories were really happy being part of the British Empire and were really upset with America leaving. They are also very anti-Israel, um, very pro-Palestine, and we kind of left off the part in the book when they throw all the Jews off the boats as they're shipping them back to Israel. At least the black people made it somewhere. Well, to, 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 they're in, it's assumed they're in the colonies. Like, everybody who is not white and straight and Christian is pretty much fucked. <laughs> I believe they make a point of sending people home. Yeah, quote-unquote home. Well, the Jews get to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. But in particular, more recently, Margaret Atwood has made it clear that one of her favorite politicians in Canada is a woman by the name of Elizabeth May, who is the like, head of the Green Party of Canada. I did a little bit of research, haven't really ever heard of Elizabeth May, and let me tell you, this bitch is crazy. One thing that Elizabeth May did a few years ago now when uh, the Canadian Prime Minister was still Stephen Harper, she was attacking Stephen Harper on his stance on climate change, and she said, quote, this is a grievance worse than Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of the Nazis. She decided the Holocaust... (laughs) 
and killing Jews and gypsies and Muslims and gay people, eh, kind of not as bad as maybe being cavalier when it comes to climate change. Same thing. Just Basically. Kidding. Same same playing field. Totally. Well, worse? <laughs> yeah, wor- wow, Jesus. The agreement's worse. It's worse. Than appeasing the Nazis. Oh, boy. This didn't play real well in Canada. I can't imagine why. After the outcry, Elizabeth May decided, I guess I need to apologize. And she needed to give a reason as to why would she say such a crazy thing. Yeah. She said, quote, I was having a lousy week. And let's be real, who hasn't had a bad week? You know, just just an absolute rough day and you're just like, you know what? This shit is worse than the Holocaust. Oh my god. And so everyone makes mistakes. Everyone on the internet has claimed that something is literally worse than Hitler after all. Obama said there was 57 states. <laughs> Trump every day says something amazing. So everyone has an off day. Um, December 2014, Elizabeth May, who was at that point a uh, parliamentary member in Canada, decided to go to Parliament and present a petition that the House of Commons in Canada needed to investigate 9-11. You see, 9-11 may have been an inside job, according to Elizabeth May. So, Margaret Atwood's favorite politician is a truther. Is? Oh boy. That's just so... That's weird. But really, Handmaid's Tale... Revenge tale against Boston because Margaret Atwood failed and was upset by her failure and needs to paint this town as pure Puritans. Well, and, everything. And, and apparently also, you know, Boston is where a good portion of the American Revolution was born, and we learned that she's apparently part of the group that's still mad at America for re- revolutioning. Oh, don't know where this fits in, but when Atwood first wrote this, there was a lot of Maybe not a lot of pushback, but there was some pushback against her saying this can't happen. Like, America is not nearly religious as it was, and it probably never will be again. And I can safely say in 2017, I don't think we're returning to the Puritan ways. Probably not. Um, But so, Margaret Jr. would walk around with newspaper clippings about things going on in Iran, um, with the Mullahs and whatever news stories supported her. And she would walk around with those clippings and show it to people and say, see, see, stuff like this. We're getting there. It's happening. We're not too far away. I mean, it's funny just because it's like, it was pre, you know, like internet. It was pre like iPhones and stuff. So it's like, you couldn't just like pop open your phone and be like, no, look at this stuff. You had to walk around with newspaper newspaper clippings in your in your pocket just at a moment's notice so you can whip that shit out she was a walking facebook argument (laughs) and she (laughs) cited her sources god damn it one of the things atwood was writing against in handmaid's tale was the televangelist in particular has atwood saw it televangelists were telling women to be wary of feminists because televangelists would say of feminists, quote, encourage women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. That sounds awesome. And so Margaret had to say, no, 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 no. Feminists are not that. And if we go your route, televangelist people, handmaids yeah, we're, we're gonna We're going to get handmaidy as fuck. <laughs> so, RJ. Yep. We've reached that point. What point? Handmaid's Tale. Robert Duvall? No. Good or bad? Godfather Robert Duvall. So good. Yeah, Godfather 1 or 2. Well, yeah, not Godfather 3, Jesus. I don't think he's in that one. No, I don't think so either. But anyway, elaborate. Handmaid's Tale. Written well. Strong imagery. Oh, yeah. Sticks with you. Well. Sticks, sticks to your leg. Not to stick with you. It slides, slides with you. God. I think I prefer 1984. It's a dystopian novel. I think people are really hot on it right now. Kind of afraid it's going to happen, I guess. How about you? What do you think, female? Of RJ? Wow. Nope. Too far. Try again. 
Of Pravi? Yeah, yeah, all right. I, I clean his poop. That's fair. That's a cat, by the way. It's not a cat. It's a cat. It's not a person. Good or bad? Good, I would say. I mean, this yeah, definitely affected me um, when I read it the first time just as a girl and just reading, like, this often very, like, graphic stuff. And it just, you know, it kind of... It kind of fucks with you because it's it's really heavy. It's very crushing. So yeah, I mean, like it, it it left a pretty strong impression. And then just now, it's like yeah, no, we're not we're not gonna be the handmade Gilead society. But you know, we're still living in a world where a bunch of dudes are attempting quite quite often in government to legislate women's bodies. And their their uteri and such. And, like, you know, you'll get these sort of government uh, think tank groups that are, like, talking about women and trying to figure out, you know, legal things with women. And it's entirely men. There are no women in the group. Like, it's, it's just they feel like they don't need the opinions of women to decide what to do with their bodies. So it's like, yeah, no, we're not, we're not dystopia there yet, but, like... It's it kind of sucks when you're a lady and you hear shit like that and you feel like some version of that might happen where your reproductive rights are no longer up to you and that's a scary thing to think about and this book kind of makes you have to mentally contend with that. So yes, good. And lest Margaret think she needs to rely on our reviews, she won the Governor General's Award, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, uh, was nominated for the Nebula Award and the Booker Prize and the Prometheus Award, all for The Handmaid's Tale. I wonder how she feels about it being nominated for, like, a Nebula, because that's, like, a, a very strictly, like, sci-fi... Speculative <laughs> fiction. <laughs> well, that'll about do it uh, for this episode of Ono Lit Class. Remember to uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us, leave reviews... If you do it and let us know, we'll give you a shout-out in the episode. Megan, there's a shout-out. From DCJ1313 to one Snorri Nori. And he says, hopefully she'll listen for her shout-out and get the hint that she needs to start listening to this hilarious podcast. Those are his words, not ours. Presumably his words. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter and if you're not listening to us on iTunes, we're on, like, literally every other listenable platform. And then, of course, there's always onolitclass.com. Our intro song is from Best Day. And you can listen to more of his music at soundcloud.com slash best-day. Our next episode will be up on June 8th. I'm Megan. He's of Megan. No, she's <laughs> of RJ, and I'm RJ. <laughs> we're out. We love you. Bye. Oh. Well, I was trying to clear my throat before. Huh? Why are you gonna be an asshole?